This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alison Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by Asia-Pacific editor Damon Evans and our content editor Andrew Dykes. Ed Reed and Hamish Penman are away, I'm assuming both celebrating our sovereign together. They've got the bunting up, the partying, I think I saw them in the mall in the Jubilee News coverage uh, yesterday, but we shall push forward even in their absence. Uh, and Andy, after a lot of back and forth, uh, Shell's jackdaw is finally squawking, is that the sound a jackdaw makes? What's been happening there? I think it is, yeah. Um, that was a, a lovely uh, 10 to 5 announcement just before a, a Jubilee bank holiday. Uh, I'm sure that's purely coincidental. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a, a long-running saga in the, the history of the Jackdaw field. Um, I think it's probably worth knowing just a little bit of the history about it first before we dive right into the issues of today. But it is obviously not a, a new, new field. Uh, discovered in 2005 and appraised between 2007 and 12. So it's kind of, it's been on the books from the appraisal stage for about 10 years. Um, but going back to January 2020, Shell submits an environmental statement for this uh, gas condensate field. With uh, with COVID and the pandemic and everything else, um, there's a lot of delays to it. It uh, has to then be resubmitted in, in May 2021 due to the, the length of time between the, the environmental statements going in. Um, and then from that point, there's a little bit of back and forth between Shell and the regulator Upred. Um, which we, we covered in Energy Voice. Um, that kind of culminates in October, um, right as I joined Energy Voice, actually. This was a lovely, you know, welcoming present to me in my first week, I remember, um, to, to find out that the, the field wasn't going to be granted approval from, from UPRED. Um, so that was in kind of middle of October last year. Um, I think quite a shock decision to you at the time, Alistair, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's a shock. It was shocked to everybody at the time. Uh, we had, uh, let's see here, you know, I think I think the the, the, the feeling from Shell, certainly, uh, and from people I've spoken to about the project who have worked around Jackdaw is that this is kind of a, a vanilla of vanilla gas projects, it's about as simple as it gets. Um, so I think there was a little bit of consternation, particularly with the 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 regulators about having you know their, their problems with pushing this forward and obviously in the time since we've had such a debate around the uh, the the natural natural gas prices and security of supply and things like that so what feels like a no brainer now um, perhaps didn't appear that way pre COP twenty six so yeah I think it was a, a big surprise to everybody uh, at the time um, yeah I, th- I think that's that's what makes it interesting in the sense that it feels very much like a, a microcosm of where we've come in this sort of past year right you've mm. got a gas project kind of as you say fairly straightforward it's a tieback a proposed tieback to shearwater so part of the uh the sort of the back and forth with the regulator last um last summer was to do with where exactly it would be tied back to there seemed to be some some paperwork that suggested. Uh, Shell wanted to tie back to sheer water, and uh, Alpred was keen that they uh, explore other alternatives. I think Judy, the, the harbour platform, was was mentioned as as a kind of question as to why that wasn't the the, the front runner. Um, Shell, I think, has said it's it's kind of part of its hub strategy, right? It's to keep sheer water going, and it kind of secures the future for that, and also potentially electrification efforts. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at the time, there was I think a bit of shock and. and um, especially around COP26, as you say, questioning why this kind of couldn't go forward. Flash forward to kind of January, you know, we reported that 
they were looking at their plans and reviewing them. This is also post-Shell at that time pulling out of Cambo as well. So th there was kind of this sense that a lot of these projects were, were really on the rocks. Um, and then, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, <laughs> skyrocketing energy prices. Yeah. We have uh, another submission in March and uh, a final granting in, in May with, um, it should be said, a couple of conditions. So um, a couple of points that kind of have to be carried through around CO2 venting and um, minimizing of any CO2 emissions. Also uh, a sort of mandate that they need to have some kind of infrastructure on the, uh, the jacked-up platform itself uh, for electrification. So again, there's kind of, there is a little bit of, you know, not strong arming, but definitely pointing in the right direction as to making sure that these kind of environmental targets and emissions targets are being met from the regulator. But mm. um, yeah, a bit of a turnaround, definitely. Yeah, and 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 tell us, uh, tell us, Andrew, how how has the um, the NGO community uh, responded to this? Uh, I see some have been. Uh, well, it, it, obviously uh, on Twitter and online, we've seen you know kind of this mass hashtag stop Jackdaw coming through, um, but they, it manifested itself in a physical form in Edinburgh yesterday. Is that right? It did, much as it's been a microcosm of a sort of political uh, and energy security point of view. It's also been a microcosm of you know, what's happening in, in opposition to these projects. So uh, yesterday, um, while the uh, the rest of the nation was taking a well-deserved <laughs> break, there was a, a sort of notable, I think fairly sizable protest um, near uh, the main station in Edinburgh, uh, at a place called Queen Elizabeth House, which is a, a UK government office that opened quite recently, um, where I think nine protesters covered the front of the building in, in bright red paint. And... Uh, sort of daub messages with, with blood on your hands. And I think what, what started off as a kind of very lighthearted one, kind of very culminated by the end of the day uh, in, in fairly graphic, graphic yeah. form. So just, um, just, just let me just roll back there. So government building, Jubilee Day, presumably about, you know, nobody's in the building at that point. So a symbolic message rather than a practical one, perhaps? I think so. Um, but, uh, you know, Mm. impactful pictures nonetheless right it was uh quite impactful yeah yeah it's uh it's interesting to see uh what comes of it obviously uh as, as we kind of mentioned shell has been working well well really since discovery that's that's 20 years isn't it really since uh they've been effectively trying to get this going so um yeah interesting to see i, I guess in fairness to the ngos you know that there is this debate about well obviously we do need our energy security um but there is this debate about how are we going to help people in the short term who are struggling with what's going to be a really tough winter ahead. Um, no matter which way you you spin this, uh, an energy security for the long term situation or not, you know, Jackdaw's not going to be up and running um, in the next you know six months. You know, it's 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 not going to help us there. Um, and and what's been interesting this week as well is there's been reports that staying on the the gas issue. Uh, it, something that could help is that there's reports that the UK government is looking at reopening within months um, the rough gas storage facility, which uh, controversially, I think it's fair to say, uh, closed five years ago. Um, and that held some 70% of the UK's gas storage cap capacity. Uh, so if we had that back open, it would cost about £2 billion, they reckon. Um, and it would be able allow Britain to store 10 days worth of supply ahead. So that would uh, that would actually help um, on on that front. Um, Jackdaw, yeah, uh, the, 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 
we, we obviously import uh, about half of the, you know, another 50% of the gas that we use uh, here in the UK. So, you know, the, the case for new gas fields does seem a bit more clear cut um, than perhaps uh, oil, um, perhaps in the west of Shetland. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think a lot of people uh, in our readership are looking at these um, jackdaw protests and, and, and trying to make these arguments Um it is, I guess, fair to say to them that this is the largest field that the UK has approved post the uh, IPCC uh, report, and I think the IEA warning that we shouldn't really have any new oil and gas uh, globally. So, um, yeah, I think I think the government is trying to take a pragmatic view. We'll see how this plays out. Um, we'll see how this plays out for other, because we have other fast-track projects uh, meant to be going through the UK government's regulatory system as well, aren't we, Andrew? So we'll we'll see whether or not that uh, comes through off the back of this. We do, yeah. We have uh, Rosebank, obviously. This is a report from earlier this year that, that suggested there was, I think, six being, being fast-tracked, including uh, Rosebank, Jackdaw. Um, we had some stuff at Catcher, uh, a peculiar field called Brodick, which we actually couldn't find very much information about at all. Um, so whether that's rolled into some other developments or, or maybe some kind of um, really near field stuff, um, we're not sure. We, you know, whether or not these are um, the ones that actually come through, I think it is interesting. Obviously, Jackdaw, as we said, it, it's kind of all the things we need right now, right? It's it's gas condensate. It's uh, a relatively kind of near field tieback. It's not kind of hugely emissions intensive from what we can see in terms of being a huge new development, but it is a large field. Um, but if if that's the kind of the line that we're taking in terms of um, energy security, that's good. But if we're if we're coming up against a lot of opposition just for that, I think this is the new normal in terms of what, what we're going to see for every kind of field approval. And I imagine, uh, you know, a few more liters of paint are going to be spilled over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, um, if, if this is the reaction to, to a field like that at this time. But I do, you know, it, it's worth mentioning, as you say, this isn't going to fix the short-term problem, right? Um, and as we spoke about with the windfall tax, there's a lot of people pointing to other kind of energy efficiency, you know, limiting demand measures that they would like to see before they saw new gas fields being mm. opened. Okay. All right. Oh, thanks, Andrew. We'll uh, we'll park Jackdaw there for now, but we will stick with Shell. But over in Australia, where some fun and games are taking place in the world's largest floating production facility. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, so our readers love an industrial dispute story, and this one is another no different. Uh, some interesting headlines coming out of the Prelude facility this week, Damon. Yeah, Alistair, for sure. A um, lot of news on Prelude, uh, floating liquefied natural gas um, production facility, the biggest in the world, as you mentioned. Uh, sits offshore Western Australia, and it's operated by Shell. Um, Shell's partners are Japan's Impex, South Korea's Kogas, and 
Taiwan CPC. Uh, yeah, I think interest in headlines is a bit of an understatement. Um, wasn't sure where to go when I when I first saw um, a statement from the the Offshore Alliance, which is a labor union in Australia. And and as I read it, I knew this 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 is my story this morning. <laughs> and um, you know, one of the words was "big king dick." I mean, perhaps big I should have put dick. that in the in the headline. <laughs> but um, in the end, I went with the headline: uh, "Shell sends fug to stop industrial strike action on Prelude FLNG," says Labour Union. And um, they didn't mince their words in their post. No. <laughs> so I'll ju- I'll just read out what what they said in brief. Um, and this is basically just a bit of background. There's going to be an industrial strike action taking place on the on the floater from the 10th of June to the 21st of June. Um, there's going to be um, rolling stoppages of work and work bans, etc., in protest against working conditions and and pay, etc. Uh, and then uh, the union actually lodged a formal complaint with Shell or protest with, uh, you know, they, the lawyers served formal notice on Shell and the prelude FLNG venture on Monday, coincidentally the same day that Shell announced the final investment decision on the Crooksfield offshore Australia, which will eventually backfill this, this floating LNG production plant from 2027. So now let's get to the good stuff. Um, the the statement from the labor union um, read uh, shell has now resorted to industrial fuggery in a desperate effort to try and stop protected industrial action on prelude one of the shell leads who has been parachuted onto prelude is throwing his weight around like he's some sort of big king dick (laughs) this self-styled hero tough guy has been doing his best to intimidate some of the younger female technicians by demanding they tell him whether they are in the union and whether they intend to take protected industrial action, claim the offshore alliance. They went on to say, Shell's senior management need to pull this idiot into line as the offshore alliance will bang both him and Shell into the federal court for breach of freedom of association provisions if he doesn't pull his head in. And they said, pull off your management thugs, Shell. Which is... You know, they, they, yeah, it's not your average PR statement that lands in your inbox. So um. it's not. I just, I'm just trying to think what what would it be like if uh, one of the unions in the North Sea put out something like that? It would just be amazing. I mean, yeah, like a, a labor a labor story is great. An Australian labor story is is next level, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I used to I used to work in construction in Australia, and when they used to have strike action, sometimes you know they'd roll up with their speedboats behind their trailers. Oh wow! And come in to do the I don't know the the formal strike stuff and then they obviously be going off with their speedboats somewhere i mean there's um you know i think i think a lot of the unions when it got tough in the uk moved over to australia because you know business was better there and and they have quite good standards of you know pay and um benefits and you know good food on site etc but um or at least they did 10 years ago i mean maybe now it's not the case but and certainly on prelude there's some grievances uh, mm. prelude's been a, a troubled project since it started up in 2019 it, that was delayed it came in well over budget it reportedly cost nearer to 17 18 billion dollars instead of the 12 billion estimated shell have never publicly said what it ended up costing and it started up late and it hasn't really produced reliably. I think last year it only was operating like half the time or produced half the amount of what it should have done in that year. Um, in December, there was a fire on board which caused a power outage. 
Um, that meant employees, you know, lost basic amenities, critical safety systems were down, um, workers were apparently left without ventilation, water, and sewage treatment systems. So you, you, I, I can kind of imagine off Western Australia, very hot in on this big massive facility and the conditions aren't particularly good you can you can i can envisage the workers perhaps being upset i mean that's probably an understatement i can envisage the smell i mean <laughs> my gosh no sewage no ventilation the temperature in the summer no come on now well actually yeah because it's yes it would have been summer. yeah december would have been yeah, hot so it would have been over, yeah, yeah over 30 right, degrees so. and at sea humid yeah no no thank you no thanks so uh that that sounds like uh how do i put this a strongly worded statement um from the unions uh do we think that uh, a strike is indeed kind of on the way then and how might that impact the timeline for this uh crooks project as well i mean that the union seem pretty certain the strike action is going ahead i uh, i got a got in touch with shell and and they gave me some official comment and they said they continue to engage um, with that with their, their people and their representatives, and they're committed to acting fairly and respectively during the bargaining process. And um, health, safety, and well-being of those on their sites is of utmost priority. And they also said, you know, we try to provide our employees with a strong value proposition, which is competitive with industry peers. So it doesn't sound like the the union is going to get what it wants from Shell within the next eight days, although, you know, it, it could still happen. There's seven days for a breakthrough. I think what this means for for Crooks going forward, I mean, it's not really going to impact Crooks, but as um, a Wood McKenzie analyst noted, following the, the, the investment decision for the 2.5 billion Crooks project, he said, you know, this is good news for Prelude. It's going to continue to produce in the, the late 20s, into the early 30s, into a tightening LNG market, although more supply will be ramping up in, in that five years' time. But he did say, you know, they're going to have to sort out the technical issues. We don't, you can't keep having technical problems at Prelude. It's unreliable. It's going to be considered as unreliable. And I think the strike action doesn't really help the whole reputational management around the prelude facility and if i was a an international lng buyer you know i, I would have taken notes of that i mean they, they really need some good headlines around prelude and and i think whatever the situation is on prelude with the workers it, it needs to be sorted out and and understandably from both sides you know the workers need to be you, you having disruptive action on board a vessel is never good on board any site is never good for the operators is it i mean you know that in in the north sea and i think recently there was you had some quite serious strikes or unauthorized strikes in the north sea and the, the operators really fun have to, times yeah you know you've, they've got to get it in line a bit, a bit a bit like the military really so i mean even though the alliance is quite uh, their statement you know things like big king dick self-styled hero <laughs> tough guy you know whether they're exaggerating or not i can imagine that they need to kind of get things in line but also perhaps you know they have to get the employees happy and well we, we don't have a window into how that's going to mm. play out and and maybe just lastly uh you know it, most of the time in the north sea anyway when we have industrial disputes it tends to go via a subcontractor um for example you know it might be a 
Just picking names out of a hat here, but you mentioned Bill Finger, for example. It might be Bill Finger as the, the contractor, um, and they might be on like a, a BP platform, for example. Um, but these these guys seem to be um, all kind of dealing directly with Shell. Is that, are they all Shell direct employees in that case? It, just, it seems different to what we might do in the North Sea, for example. But it's interesting you say that. I mean, that thought occurred to me today. I mean, it does seem like they are targeting Shell and it does seem like they are direct employees with Shell but I'm not sure that is the case actually I mean maybe it I mean Shell seems I mean my experience with Shell is they look after their employees very well uh, and I've seen them on site and I've seen I've seen them build the Sacklin LNG plant and I you know their, their staff were very well looked after so I am wondering if perhaps there is a, a subcontractor in there that's managing this and and the way they said about a shell lead being parachuted in i think it's actually parachuted in but uh, but you know i think perhaps there might be a subcontractor in there and that that's something perhaps i will look into okay but. well it sounds like we're gonna have more uh headlines around prelude one way or the other uh soon so thank you for that uh damon i think we've now hit the record for the number of times somebody said dick in the uh energy voice podcast we'll get at least one more in there um next up uh we'll be back with a big development a a, a bad development seems to be the consensus for the north sea helicopter market <laughs> Drager Marine and Offshore's Aberdeen Hub is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week and is the safety equipment centre of excellence for all North Sea operations. Drager is a key safety provider of bespoke training courses such as working in confined spaces or at height, authorised gas testing and hundreds of others, all tailored to you and your needs. From our Aberdeen Hub we offer higher equipment plus onshore and offshore servicing and the very latest safety solutions such as rescue equipment, breathing and respiratory support, drug and alcohol solutions, gas detection and PPE. And all built for you whether you work in oil and gas, decommissioning or a smooth move to clean energy. We have been operating for over 130 years and are ready to help you with your safety needs. Download an FPS or higher catalogue from our website at drager.com. That's D-R-A-E-G-E-R dot com. Or call us on plus four four zero one two two four seven zero one five six nine. Drager, your partner in safety. So this week, the UK's Competition and Markets Authority has finally ruled on a months-long investigation, I think this has been going since sometime October of last year, really, into helicopter operator CHC's takeover of Babcock's operation in the North Sea. The deal also covers Australia and Denmark, which is obviously outside the UK Competition Authority's jurisdiction. It has ruled, uh, despite numerous loud and quite reasoned protests that if CHC wants to proceed with this takeover, then it must sell off the North Sea business of Babcock, which takes us right back effectively to where we were about two years ago when they were trying to sell this thing in the first place, uh, Babcock itself. So the CMA argues uh, that if CHC were to take over in full without uh, any kind of interference, this would effectively cut down the number of helicopter operators in the UK oil and gas industry from four down to three, thereby cutting competition. On paper, that seems drastic, and on paper, four players down to three for any other business would indeed seem to cut competition. You see the logic there. 
The point that CHC and others before them have made is that the North Sea market has been in dire straits in recent times. Yes, the oil price is up now, but we've had effectively near enough a decade of very tough times now. Contracts squeezed to the point where they're really not profitable. Many cases of just kind of doing these to, to keep the choppers flying effectively. And the customer is king uh, in terms of pricing power. We've had a lot of headlines about a race to the bottom in order to win contracts and uh, the subsequent concerns about the impacts that may have on safety. So CHC has said that the CMA uh, has fundamentally failed to understand the specific market conditions for the sector. Uh, they're now going to go ahead and merge the uh, Australia and Denmark operations, but they're going to decide on next steps uh, for the UK after taking in consideration the report. Um, I did ask a few people in the industry about their thoughts on this. Um, I asked Steve Robertson of uh, Air and Sea Analytics. Um, he said that we're, yeah, as I said, back to where we were near enough two years ago when um, Babcock was trying to sell this business. Um, you know, if CHC couldn't get it past the competition regulators, how could the other two incumbents, Bristol or NHV, hope to do so? And it kind of means uh, that a new entrant which isn't going to get any benefit of integrating two existing business on the airfield is kind of the only option now. But you're not getting the cost savings there. It's not as attractive. So, yeah, a lot of people pointing out inconsistencies in the CME report itself. They're saying, on the one hand, people have that had been identified as interested parties for the business, having now said that they're not interested. On the other hand, they're saying that the divested business will be attractive to purchasers. So, so who then? I don't know. Um, I mean, this, this is a, a, a strange situation from from my point of view. In that it's it's a willing seller, right? This isn't a kind of hostile takeover situation. This is a willing seller and a willing buyer um, who were quite keen to move this forward. Um, kind of coming up against, as you say, you know, a very harsh seems to be interpretation of of what competition is, mm -hmm. given that it, it leaves. Yeah, the it, it does seem competitors still in the market. Again, on paper, for any other kind of business or, or most other business i would assume that moved from four players down to three yes i, I see the logic there um but you know this i mean chc hasn't been quiet about this uh, and and quite frankly we've been writing headlines about this long before we were really switched on to the babcock deal you know the, the, it's not a secret that the 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 north sea helicopter market has been in you know I guess in trouble is not an unfair way of putting it you know they've, they've had some really bad times recently um if you look back at any stories about the accounts of any of the main operators in recent years for their North Sea businesses, you're going to see stories about uh, losses, heavy losses, in fact. So, um, and I guess to that point and to your point, Andrew, the, the, the last thing to say about this is, you know, Babcock Engineering, you know, the wider Babcock group, the international, lamented the helicopter business. They made no bones about how bad it was, how unprofitable it was. And they got out as a result. So CHC has said, in its back and forth, you know, current pricing isn't sustainable and it could see others look to exit. So Steve from uh, Air and Sea, you know, he said, you know, the CMA will look very inept if the end result of this is two operators on the airfield. I think that sums it up nicely. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a tricky one to, to navigate. I don't know what the options are if CHC wanted to appeal this. Presumably there is a, a, a means of doing that. But yeah, it, it just feels like... Um, it does feel like they've not really, either willingly or not, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like they've really taken into appreciation the the issues surrounding the specific um, segment. And it's not for a lack of trying from the operators who've tried to basically 
put this out uh, to them. Uh, so, I think yeah. another thing that's worth mentioning is um, is the historical context, which I, I did a bit of reporting a couple of weeks ago on this. And, um, and CHC's pension fund pointed out that, you know, in I think it was 1999, there was a takeover that left, I think it was with involving CHC and Bond at mm -hmm. the time. I might be wrong, but, right, I think. Um, you know, a, a transaction that left only two competitors mm -hmm. in the market. And, and that was approved at the time by what was then the, the Competition Commission. I appreciate, you know, legislation might have changed in that time, but there's, there's a historical precedent for these kinds of transactions in order to also just keep the market moving, right? The last thing you want is to have people unable to service contracts and, and reach installations. And, you know, if this is this this whole pursuit of energy security and, and getting people back to work, especially in a post-COVID sense, um, you know, putting barriers in that in the way of that is, uh, is not ideal. Well, what stands out to me was, with Alistair, and I might be wrong, was that you were saying the pricing was going down because it was like a competition cutthroat kind of situation and that yeah. put safety at risk. And, and that would have been what, you know that would be top of my mind and, and like andrew just pointed out you, you're gonna you might end up with a situation where it affects energy security because you can't get out to these platforms again it just baffles me the the headlines i hear from your side of the world yeah. related to the government policy they baffle me sometimes as well uh but you know so it's a, it's a yeah you're absolutely spot on damon i mean we had uh a, you know there's been numerous people making uh, representations to this inquiry one of them was a uh, i believe a chc uh, captain um okay he's he's on payroll but you know these people you know a, a pilot a captain of a helicopter he knows what he's talking about um and you know if he's got concerns he did set out that you know he's got concerns about you know what, what does this mean you know if 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 we continue to have this bad bad levels of pricing, how is that going to impact you know our ability to service these choppers and to you know put safety first, which is obviously the number one priority for everybody, but uh, equally uh, yeah as as you say we have had numerous headlines um, you know I, I think certainly certainly the height of twenty twenty um, numerous people pointing the finger to at Babcock particularly saying you've taken on this contract, you know, we know this could not be anything like profitable for you. Why have you done that? You're harming the rest of the industry by taking it on at that level. And that seems to be a pretty frequent thing uh, that we've, as I say, we've, we've reported on in, in, in recent times in terms of, of contract levels for the market. So, yeah, I mean, this it, it, it's it's got to be said, you know, if, if that continues, then something's got to give. Um, so I, I don't know how this... This leaves us. Um, the other maybe point I would, I'd also make, based on Andrew's one, is that historically, uh, not not so much recently, but historically, there actually has been three players in the helicopter market in the North Sea, not four. Uh, the fourth entrant, entrant was relatively recent, I think, with CH, with NHV of Belgium. So you know, it, there is again precedent that it can operate pretty sustainably with three players. So I, I don't know. It, it, it seems a, a tricky one. Um, we will see how that plays out. But uh, I think I think for now, anyway, we will leave that tackle there. And that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Say so thanks to Damon and to Andrew for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too.
If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.